Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. But Cam, who are we to talk about such heady subjects like the Cold War? Frankly, we know nothing, and we've proven that through a year and a half of podcasting. So we've brought in an expert this week. Mm, yes. Throwing himself over the Berlin Wall. It is Ian from the Cold War Conversations podcast. And Ian, frankly, you're a real podcaster, unlike us. Oh, I wouldn't say that, to be honest. Uh, you know, I've, <laughs> I've, well, the podcast has only been going for three years, but um, it's been a surprising success for me i thought i might get a few hundred listeners and it's gone it's gone a bit crazy just on the 200th episode congratulations yeah congratulations what was the genesis of the podcast uh well spies basically they're to blame the <laughs> uh i came across I, i've always been a fan of uh espionage particularly cold war espionage and um came across a podcast called Spybury, who I think your listeners will be familiar with. Um, spoke to the guy who runs that, Shane Whaley, who uh, I think has been a guest on, on the show as well. And uh, turned out we both had a similar interest in the Cold War, specifically East Germany. And uh, he said, oh, you should do a podcast on East Germany. It would be great. And, you know, you, you put it off, you put it off because you just think ah, it's... You know, I'm not going to be able to do this. But in the end, I uh, started it, but wanted to have a broader remit than just East Germany. So uh, that was Cold War Conversations, and it started in March 2018 and has been weekly ever since. Wow. Well, what was sort of your background in terms of, like, were you a history major? Or, like, what drew you into this fascination with history? Um, I never went to university, so... I've I've never studied uh, history there. Always had an interest in it, really through my parents. They were always interested in history and particularly military history. So my father served in World War Two, told me stories of that. I had a grandfather who um, served in World War One at the Battle of the Somme, and a great uncle who died in World War One. So there was a family history there. Um, and I've always been interested in those stories. And with Cold War conversations, it was, it was really around, you know, the Cold War was my formative years. So it's very much a very strong memory that um, fear of nuclear Armageddon. And um, you know what? What I realised was that a lot of these stories don't get recorded. And the aim of Cold War conversations is really to capture these stories and particularly the unknown stories um so i've you know i've interviewed kgb spies who've been undercover in the us for like eight years uh the son of nikita khrushchev who was the soviet leader at the time of the cuban missile crisis um but also people who were school children at the time uh people who worked in factories at the time so it's a real broad range there and it's to make sure these voices aren't lost. And I think, you know, you as podcasters will appreciate that the impact of hearing the spoken word or the words of people who actually experienced these events is much more powerful than reading it off, off the page. And uh, that, that's really been my driver around it, is to preserve 
these oral histories before they're lost. Right. Well, it's very fitting, you know, um, people know from the title that we're going to be tackling a Steven Spielberg movie this week. And that's been so much part of his life with the Shoah Foundation is recording all of the testimonies of Holocaust survivors. So I think it's a really interesting pairing just to have you recording all of these voices of people who, you know, experienced the Cold War. Yeah, that that's a that's a really good comparison. I hadn't thought of that um that uh link there, but well done. Good research as usual. That's what I'm here for. I, I don't know about as usual, but uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've almost given it away, but before we do, I I just want to talk about cuz we've been talking before we booked this, uh, just because we're both in the spy realm of of, of podcasters, I suppose. And I, I wanted to have you on for one that resonated with something you're dealing with. And we haven't actually dealt with that many Cold War stories. And you're talking about you know, preserving the history of these people. And we're over here doing like gotcha. So, Which I'd never heard of. And uh, thank you for introducing <laughs> me to that. <laughs> you can thank us later. I'm not sure you really will once you've seen it. But mm. yeah, maybe after I've watched it, I, you know. Um, so I think this is a, a, a good pick. But... Cam, what are we talking about this week? Well, we are talking about Steven Spielberg's 2015 film, Bridge of Spies, starring Tom Hanks. Judging by the length of the Letterboxd.com synopsis, I'm going to start it now, and I'll probably meet hmm. you guys at the end of the podcast, all right? So you guys <laughs> just keep talking, all right? No, all right. Bridge of Spies. In the shadows of war, one man showed the world what we stood for. During the Cold War... The Soviet Union captures U.S. pilot Francis Gary Powers after shooting down his U-2 spy plane. Sentenced to 10 years in prison, Powers' only hope is New York lawyer James Donovan, recruited by a CIA operative to negotiate his release. Donovan boards a plane to Berlin, hoping to win the young man's freedom through a prisoner exchange. And if all goes well... The Russians would get Rudolf Abel, the convicted spy who Donovan defended in court. Well, it's thorough. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one to sum up, I think, in a short way. So that makes sense. Uh, that's a that's a, a fair summary of uh, what goes on for two hours and 20-odd minutes, I think. You're both being very polite to this synopsis. I was not a fan, but we'll, we'll move on. Um, <laughs> Now, I, I think before we talk about experiences on the film and, and getting to the history, on on your podcast, Ian, do you ever touch on films or is it really just as real life stories? Um, I do touch on films, mainly documentary films that I come across. So uh, I did do one with a guy whose father was a Stasi spy um and didn't discover that he was a Stasi spy until quite late on in, in in his life um which was a really um interesting episode but tend to not do uh movies i'd hate to tread on your toes guys hmm. no well you know we're all you know spy brothers and sisters in in this world so you know we can all share the landscape okay and so what we'd like to do at this point is talk about our experiences with the film when they came out I'm not talking about the review now but any thoughts about when this film came out so do you recall 2015 when the film came out did you catch it in the theaters at all uh i didn't catch it in the cinema uh hmm. uh well i first time i saw it i think was on netflix actually um and i th i thought it was it was good it was an entertaining film um you know it's not 
the car chase and gadgets and the the bond style it's uh, a little bit more cerebral than perhaps uh, some spy movies well we didn't really talk about it in the intro but you know your podcast you've touched on the odd film or two but you're, you're talking real life stories when you go to the theater when you go to the cinema to watch a film a spy film are you going for more the james bonds or are you going for more you know the lacare adaptations or films like this um I, I enjoy the Bonds, and in fact, the Bonds is uh, me and my wife's regular cinema treat is to go and see the latest Bond. We don't go to the cinema that often, but we do quite religiously um, go and see the the latest Bond. Um, I I tend to not watch stuff at, at, at the cinema now uh, because the you know screens have got bigger, sound systems have got bigger. Um, I guess I'm just lazy and enjoy it from the armchair uh without other people's popcorn crackling in the background hey I, i'm a i'm a bit of a stay-at-home guy myself but even in your home library of films what's your sort of is it james bond you would go to to re-watch at home or would you go for more of a serious spy film uh no it wouldn't be it would be something like the lives of others um funeral in berlin is a favorite of mine mm. although i know that certain personalities on here didn't enjoy it uh, no, I think we both we both enjoyed it. I, I I didn't like I didn't like Summer Funeral in Berlin, but there were bits I enjoyed. It was maybe a bit too thinky for me, but then again, we do a podcast that covers Gotcha, like I said. So <laughs> I don't think very much at all. Yeah, yeah, and you know I enjoy political thrillers and 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 things like that. So you know I enjoy the Bournes. The Bourne trilogy is a good one. Okay, well, uh, good choice. Uh, well, Cam, what about you? Did you catch this film on release? I did see it in theaters. Um, Spielberg was a very important director for me growing up, obviously. Things like, you know, E.T., Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park. So there's very few of his films I haven't made the effort to go see in theaters. Um, boy, I think maybe The Terminal. There's very few that I've skipped. And so Bridge of Spies came out. And I don't know that it was one that I was super hyped for, but it was an appointment visit for me to go and I remember I went on my own um, and really enjoyed it. I was actually really won over by the movie. And it was one that Spielberg's more history-based films that have come later in his career, some of them haven't grabbed me as much. Um, I remember feeling a little cold on Lincoln. And this one was, um, you know, followed shortly after. And so I was kind of expecting something along the same lines. And I was uh, much more engrossed by this one and walked out quite pleased and um, wasn't surprised when it received a lot of Academy Award nominations later on in the year. Yeah, I, I could see why you probably enjoyed it uh, on your first visit. But I think before we get to our thoughts now, Cam, would it help if you gave us the backstory of this film? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find out. <laughs> so um, the project started with a writer named Matt Charman, who'd worked uh, mostly in TV. He'd done a couple of miniseries called Our Zoo and Black Work. And he read a book by Robert Dalek called An Unfinished Life, which was about the JFK era. And he became really interested in this character named James Donovan and his efforts in Cuba during that era, during the um, Bay of Pigs invasion. And that led him down a rabbit hole as to who exactly James Donovan was. And it led to, obviously, the story that would become Bridge of Spies. And so he put together a treatment and went around Hollywood pitching it everywhere. And the studios really responded. There was a bidding war for this project. 
DreamWorks uh, DreamWorks won, and Steven Spielberg was immediately on board. And uh, that doesn't happen for a lot of writers. <laughs> you know, your first major film going around town that suddenly Steven Spielberg's like, yep, I'm doing it. Let's do it. So um, pretty good story there. It's, it's a great story. And, and to be fair, we're actually speaking to the man himself, Matt Charman, a little later this week. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. So we'll get the full story on that. But before you move on, uh, Cam, Ian, I did have a quick question. Were you familiar with that book or James Donovan at all? Is that something you've come across in your research? I read Donovan's book uh, a while back, um, and I was familiar with the um, with with the story. But um, did did you find in your research that apparently Gregory Peck tried to uh, make the movie in the 1960s? Oh, no, I didn't stumble across that. That's really interesting. He would have made a lot of sense in that role. Yeah, he he was going to be Donovan, and he'd lined up Alec Guinness to play Abel. Hmm, that makes sense. Um, but apparently MGM declined it uh, because Cold War tensions were high at the time. This was 65, and MGM were reluctant to get deep into the politics of the uh, of the story. Well, that's really interesting because, um, you know, Steven Spielberg has a great love for the spy genre and it started he says from um <laughs> reading spy versus spy comics in mad magazine but more notably watching the 1965 film the spy who came in from the cold so i would have thought there would have actually been maybe an appetite for a film like that you know obviously paired with that um john Carre classic yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm th- i'm thinking back to spy that came in from the cold i mean it was uh you know, not very political, whereas this was, mm. you know, quite, and also Smoke Came In From The Cold was fictional, whereas this is based on a true story, and not very long after that, that true story happened as well. Mm, that's an excellent point. Um, so, yeah, Spielberg was looking to follow up Lincoln and seized on this project, and he said a big part of his connection to this material was a story from his own life. His father, in 1960, had visited Moscow as part of a delegation of electrical engineers, and he waited in line for two hours to see the broken U-2 plane and the pilot's flight suit that we see in the incident in this movie, the real-life event, Um, and the Russian military had put it on display, and his dad was waiting and had some sort of, um, you know, kind of tense encounter with a military guy who was checking passports, and this story had kind of continued on in Spielberg's mind, and so when he came across this material, it was just like, Check the box. I want to make this movie. This is a passion project for me. I mean, having that uh, people that, that caliber of talent on board from day one with Spielberg, you know you're in for a, for a treat. And I mean, this sounds like a really good situation for the writer Matt Charman because he said, you know, he wrote a draft, got some notes from Spielberg, wrote a second draft. Tom Hanks jumped on board to do it, and Tom Hanks had a relationship with Spielberg going back quite a ways. Um, obviously through, you know, Saving Private Ryan and The Terminal, but also um, the two of them had produced Band of Brothers and The Pacific for HBO. So um, two of the big heavyweights of Hollywood here are on board with this script. And the Coen brothers, um, the established uh, and very famous directorial and writing team who've done, you know, The Big Lebowski and Fargo and No Country for Old Men, they had come across the screenplay and loved it and said, hey, we'd love to polish this. And so they did their you know, overhaul on the script and then handed it actually back to Matt Charman to then make his own changes. So it wasn't like so many writer situations we hear where maybe a new writer comes up with the concept, 
Um, you know, and then the established pro comes in, takes it over, and that's that. Um, it feels like it was much more of a hand back and forth um, situation and much more respectful. Sounds very polite, and uh, I'm looking forward to digging into that deeper with Matt later this week. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time, the casting of Mark Rylance was something that a lot of film fans were a little confused by because he was not really a known name. Um, but he, in his actual, you know, acting life was a very, very established and well-regarded theater talent who'd won three Tonys, two Olivier Awards. He was the first artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe in London from 1995 to 2005 and just had always chosen to work in theater, had done very few films other than, you know, a couple notables. But the the one that really stands out was from 2008, The Other Bolin Girl, which was a movie starring um, um, Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman. I did see it. It was pretty good. Um, not bad, but not someone who'd really made an impact in terms of the film world. So this is really his coming out party. And he would pair again with Spielberg going forward on like multiple films, including, you know, the BFG, Ready Player One. So um, pretty exciting launch of an actor onto the big screen here in a big, bad way. And not to foreshadow my thoughts, but uh, yeah, he did a good job. In my view, he steals the show. I mean, he's brilliant in it, I think. Yeah, you can see why Spielberg, after you know putting this guy in Bridge of Spies, is like, I've got to keep writing more material for this man. I need to have this guy in as many movies as possible. So, And obviously, Christopher Nolan picked up on that later as well and cast him in Dunkirk. Yeah, although there is some controversy over his choice of a Scottish accent for Abel. <laughs> uh, I'm not even going to start on accents. I, I'm not the guy. Scott, you have to step in on the Scottish accent uh, critique. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not particularly Scottish. Um, I, I, I'm not really sure where his accent is from in this film. Well, the the interesting thing is Abel was brought up in Newcastle upon Tyne. Okay. So he would have had, in speaking English, he would have had a Geordie accent. Right. Yeah, okay. So I can hear that accent in my ear, and that is not what he does in this film. No. I'm, I'm actually glad he didn't do that accent, though, because that can be quite comical at times. If the listeners could see me, they would see a blank stare on my face. <laughs> same as usual. I am not the accent guy. Yeah, same as usual. Yeah. <laughs> you, would have, you would have needed subtitles, I think, if he'd done Geordie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. Well, so maybe it was an artistic choice then just to um, be friendly to the North American audience. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes sense. Um, I, the amount of times I've seen people that have done interviews that are from up north here in the UK that get subtitled in America is uh, quite astounding, actually. So yeah, I suppose that does make sense. Mm-hmm. So for a Spielberg movie, this was actually fairly low budget. It cost $40 million and uh, did quite well. Domestically, it did 72.3. International, 93.2. For a worldwide total of $165.5 million. Uh, when you measure it against other Spielberg movies, maybe that isn't a you know blockbuster in comparison to a Jurassic Park or uh, a lot of his other work. But when you consider this is a fairly labyrinthine film, fairly complex, that's a pretty good gross and a good return on investment. I, I'm when I think of Spielberg, and maybe I'll get to this in a minute when we talk about the film. I just think big budget. So when I see uh, that we're covering this film, and I saw Spielberg was involved, I I went into it thinking it was going to be this, you know, with explosions and all kinds of nonsense. And what I get is a completely different film. So, it, but I'm still glad it made a good return. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was number forty-five for the year between the Fantastic Four reboot, 
which was horrendous. Oh, no. <laughs> and from Vegas to Macau 2, which you may not be familiar with, it was a Hong Kong action comedy starring Chow Yun-Fat that was, um, at the time, really, I guess, well-marketed for its 3D. So I haven't seen this film, but um, it did produce a third entry, so it's a fairly successful franchise, it would seem. I've seen all of them. They're brilliant. Wow. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay, can you talk about them a bit? I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> he got oh. us. He got us. He got Sorry. Us. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was so excited there for a moment. <laughs> uh, Ian, That's a good one. Uh, you've gone down on my estimations a bit there. I, I've had my legs taken oh. out already. Yeah. Well, thanks um, for joining us, Ian. We'll see you later. Yeah. Bye. That, that was it. <laughs> The top three for this year, number one was The Force Awakens. Number two was Jurassic World, which was produced by Spielberg. So this guy did pretty well this year. Mm-hmm. And number three was Furious 7. Notably, you have two seventh entries on the top three there. <laughs> so I don't know how often that really happens. I, probably more and more as we go forward with the franchise world. Um, some other notables from this year. Number six was Spectre. Number eight was Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Number 18, Kingsman. Number 33, Spy with Melissa McCarthy. Number 66, The Man from Uncle. And number 85, Hitman, Agent 47. Um, as I said, this movie received a lot of Oscar nominations. It was nominated for Best Picture, Original Screenplay, Original Score for Thomas Newman, Sound Mixing, and Production Design. It didn't win any of those, but it did win Best Supporting Actor for Mark Rylance. So that was its main um, victory for the Oscar season. But um, that pretty much wraps up my behind-the-scenes on Bridge of Spies. So, Scott, back to you. Well, well-deserved, uh, well-deserved win there for Rylance, I should say. But yeah, let's let's get down to it. Bridge of Spies. Um, Ian, you're our guest. You go first. You've revisited it for the podcast. What do you think of Bridge of Spies? I think it's a it's a really good film. As with any Hollywood film, they take a lot of liberties with some of the scenes but it it does stick pretty close to the story but there is added drama uh put in there to obviously entertain the audience and i i you know from my point of view any film that covers the cold war helps to increase an appetite for an audience who who want to learn more about it so providing you know the a movie is not completely um awful um then uh i you know i i think it's you know it's good and particularly you know revisiting some of these uh historical stories that perhaps people um don't know about particularly you know the the shooting down of uh gary powers in the in the u2 uh plane which which we'll come on to later but i think it's a particularly interesting story and the relationship between uh donovan uh and Abel I think is is brilliantly done and I think that that again is is Rylance um being you know particularly good but then you know obviously um Tom Hanks you can't fault him either no I, I don't think so at all I think, you, I think you're right and one thing I noted down in in my notes about this film is it, it got Hollywood it you know the story I read about compared to what we saw on the screen it is a little bit different like you like you said, Ian, I want to sort of maybe hear the exact story a little bit, maybe a comparison between the two later on. But like, I, I made a note saying this film got argoed because the Argo story was sort of inflated for for the big screen. 
and it and it worked and we, we i think that made knocklist in the end and i think this one works too what do you think of the film cam i really enjoyed revisiting this movie i hadn't seen it since theaters and it's one that just sucks you in it has this vibe that really works i think it's a um you know for spielberg it's could be you know it could be considered a little small scale just you know 40 million dollar movie you're not working with the blockbuster kind of filmmaking style that he's so well known for but it is so masterfully made just at a filmmaking level there's so many interesting transitions and uses of sound and visuals in this movie that just really i think help draw you into a movie that could be very aloof and maybe a little cold for viewers who aren't necessarily looking to dive into a very complex cold war film i think it's very inviting and works as a narrative to draw them in but um, you know, the performances of Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance are so crucial to driving this movie because I think it's a very complex film in a lot of ways. But because you have these very two strong performers that are instantly really likable to the audience, we like these people, we want to see what's going to happen to them, and we get very engrossed in their stories. It just is a perfect guide through this movie. And I mean, Tom Hanks, I mean, he's you know, America's every man in film, right? He represents the best of America in so many movies. And this is a movie about an America that's at war with itself in so many ways because of the paranoia of the Cold War. And to have him sort of setting this example of how you can find humanity in very, um, you know, difficult circumstances works really well for this movie. It doesn't feel preachy or overly schmaltzy, which Spielberg has been accused of in the past. It just really works for me as a story uh, you know, a historical story brought to life. I, I think for me, looking at it in sort of in, in broad strokes, I obviously hadn't seen it before doing this review. It's For me, this film is in two halves. You have this procedural, this legal procedural at the start. And I really love those sorts of stories and seeing, you know, Tom Hanks as James Donovan defending, uh, you know, Mark Rylance as, as Rudolph Abel in court, giving him due process and, and trying to defend his rights and, you know, but he's being the the everyman that that sort of noble good deed. He's doing what he should as a citizen, and I really like that side of the film. And then it turns into this thriller as the Berlin Wall is being constructed, and I, maybe that's maybe not my favorite part of the film. I probably preferred the legal side of it at the start. I I found the the Cold War side of it in air quotes the stuff in Berlin to be maybe a little bit. Uh, saccharin okay yeah no i mean, I was going to say i think the the berlin scenes are particularly contrived in that middle section and i was going to talk in in some detail as to where i think they sort of overdo it to uh create dramatic impact well i i, I maybe we'll, we'll we'll go to that in a second then i just to sort of close it off i no, it's not that i didn't enjoy the stuff in in berlin I found it to be quite interesting. And, and, you know, Rylance and Hanks carry this film to the finish line. And that scene on the bridge at the end is probably one of my favourite moments in the films we've watched in the last couple of months. Hmm. But there's just moments where it it felt almost a little bit tensionless, like it was all just sugar-coated stuff, like Hollywood style. I didn't, It was a bit glitz and glam, whereas, I don't know. I, I I felt like if you think of the Courier, a film we covered a little while ago on a, on a declassified episode, that felt more realistic in terms of the threat of Cold War. Seeing Benedict Cumberbatch emaciated in that chamber towards the end, that felt like there was a real threat going on. Whereas Tom Hanks bumbling around East Berlin 
I don't know if it really did it for me, that part. Well, I want to get to Ian's um, delving into sort of the history of this in a second. But I think for me, the I, it's tough to compare just because of what Benedict Cumberbatch's character was going through. That's much more extreme circumstances than what uh, James Donovan went through. Um, so that didn't phase me too much. To me, it was more... The reason the stakes worked so well was because of the Mark Rylance performance mm-hmm. and that we are so, you know, we're negotiating about his life. And because we feel so invested with that character, it did work for me. But I want to pass it over to Ian just to talk a little bit about what he felt were maybe the the instances that were a little more built up for, you know, Hollywood purposes. Well, I think before I do that, what I do want to say is some of the attention to detail in this film was, was really good. Um, you might have noticed that Abel before he's arrested, he's wearing a hat with a white band on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is exactly what he was wearing, which made it easier for the FBI to actually trail him uh, when they were following him. Um, so, you know, it, it's little details like that, I, I think, are, are really strong. But then, you know, when you come to the section where uh, Donovan is uh, defending Abel, um the the impression you get is that you know his firm aren't that keen on him uh defending it um they have uh, a scene where somebody shoots at his house which never happened so that was added in for you know extra dramatic um interest and uh you know in his memoir he actually said that he never felt personally um threatened there so they do try and ratchet up the tension uh to try and give it a bit more uh oomph there but also i think you know he's he's portrayed as this private attorney with no connection to the government or the intelligence services but as you said at the start during world war ii he was served for the uh, office of strategic services the oss uh shortly before it was reorganized as the cia so you know he he did have some links into the intelligence services. He wasn't just a lawyer, which is the way that he was portrayed in the movie. Um, as you get in further into the film, um, there's also some some instances with the uh, with the aircraft shoot down, which I think can be forgiven. That you know they they used um, a later model of the U two spy plane. Hmm rather than the model that would have been around at the time. Um, And the plane wasn't actually hit by a missile. The missile exploded some distance away that that brought it down. But um, what's interesting is Gary Power's son was an advisor for the film. I don't know whether you knew that. Yeah. Um, And I interviewed him in uh, one of my episodes where we went into quite a lot of detail around the uh the shoot down and, and what happened to his father um and he gets a cameo role uh in it as well uh which is which is really good when the um the actor playing his dad walks out of the hangar to the spy plane uh gary powers jr is to his left oh okay uh, so uh worth looking out for that um and also gary powers was not tortured um, which is what is implied in the um, in the movie. He was in a less brutal prison, treated humanely, given preferential treatment, mainly because they realised they had a negotiating, um, you know, chip there that they could that they could use him for. 
Um, and then we move on to Berlin, where they do take some further liberties. Do you want me to uh, carry on with these? Well, I want to just touch on one thing I think is, it seems to be a little fuzzy with even the filmmakers, because you were saying, you know, the attack on um, Donovan's house where he was fired at. Spielberg actually had an interview quote with that I stumbled across where he said, in reality, it was only one bullet, but he built it up to six to make it more dramatic. So I wonder if even Spielberg's a little fuzzy on the reality of that situation. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think I know where that quote comes from. I was listening to a podcast earlier today where he's being interviewed, Spielberg, I should say, pronouns. Uh, Spielberg is being interviewed by Martin Scorsese about this film. Oh, okay. And that's where he mentions the one bullet. Hmm. So that's from him exactly. And I've heard that interview. So when Ian just said that there, it's actually now I'm confused as to which is the correct, uh, you know, um, you know, set of events. But yeah, I mean, it, who knows? I mean, Donovan could have played down the threat yeah. in his memoirs. You know, people tend to want to try and portray things favorably when they write their memoirs. So uh, you can't necessarily take it as pure fact. And ultimately, either way, the situation is built up for more dramatic, you know, stakes in this film than in reality. So, well, I think I, I want to just jump off of that for a second. And and this is, I made it sound when I was talking about the film at the start. I didn't like it. Um, I I don't want it to come across to the listeners. I like this film. I think it's a very good film. I think it's some great performances in the film. I just felt it was a bit too Hollywood. Right. That's that I had this sort of feeling like when he when Tom Hanks is bumbling around having his coat stolen and getting a bit of a cold walking around in East Berlin. I to me, I felt like he should have been in more danger or at least felt like he was in more danger. And I never got that sense because they wanted to build him up as this hero and they needed more time to have him, you know, overcoming the odds and, and making this negotiation between the two sides of, you know, Russia and East Berlin. Um, and that's 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 maybe my main gripe with the film, but it's by no means uh, a damning gripe. It's just something I'm picking on. What what I was going to say is they do try and make the, the Berlin scenes a bit more dramatic. Uh, you see tanks in quite a number of the scenes, and there were no tanks deployed by the Berlin Wall, mm. uh, but they do feature... In, in this film and you know the 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 scene where uh prior frederick prior the uh, us student is arrested um is not true to the actual events when the wall was built he was on holiday in denmark at the time um but he returned a couple of weeks later and when he crossed into east berlin he was going to visit a friend's sister who he hadn't realized had fled to west berlin and when he arrived at the flat, it was under surveillance by the East German secret police, the Stasi, and he was arrested for espionage because he had his uh, thesis with him as well, <laughs> which does make an appearance in in the movie. It's I think what the conversation we're having is very much tied to an ongoing uh, debate that people have, you know, even today and going back many, many decades in film, which is that when you're adapting real life stories, how do you capture truth? and still make it an entertaining film because life is not the movies. And um, yes, yeah, Spielberg's fallen on both sides of the critical divide. He's made movies that were these historical accounts where people did um, call him to task for his portrayals and kind of built up Hollywood Hollywoodization of the events. This one, to me, 
I think, uh, and it's maybe a, another conversation topic we could have is the Cold War has always felt like a very complicated topic for me in film, especially like a, something of a mainstream film for audiences. I think you can make a very engrossing, dense Cold War film that, um, you know, spy fans will really be into and historians would be really into. But when you're making a film that's go, I mean, this is a prestige film. This is an Academy Award type film. I think it's very difficult to make it as, um, you know, historically accurate and as maybe as reserved as the actual events were and still deliver something that's going to entertain people and bring them to the theater. It's sort of a commerce versus um, truth situation. It is. And, uh, you know, they're clear at the start, as every movie is that's allegedly based on fact, is they do say inspired by true events or something similar. So they've always got that um, that get out. I just think that, that some of the scenes, the, the true story is just as dramatic. Um, but I guess they wanted to make the most of the Berlin Wall situation and utilise that very much as a you know, a piece of uh, scenery uh, that, you know, does communicate effectively to an audience the fact the city is divided. Mm-hmm. Well, I, Spielberg also has to create this film, like Cam was alluding to, for the average moviegoer, not just the, the spy fans, the historians. And and I think that's that's our two categories there between our two podcasts is, you know, spy movie fans and historians. And so he's walking the fine line there. And of course, we're going to sit here and go, oh, you know, the Berlin Wall was one inch too short. And that's fair enough to point out. But ultimately, he's trying to make a film that people can go to the cinema and see and enjoy without knowing much about the Cold War. And I think I'm, I, I, I take that. I will keep that in mind when I get to maybe the knock list at the end. But I think I want to pivot us over to just talking about some of the things we liked about the film. Um, and we've alluded to it already. but you know, Mark Rylance, he is only in the first 40 minutes of the film and then maybe the last 10, mm-hmm. but leaves the biggest impact on the entire film. Yeah, I remember, you know, when he won the Supporting Actor Oscar, it was a little bit of a surprise because a lot of prognosticators had Stallone winning that one for Creed. And there was a fair number of people who were like, like, who? Like, how did this guy win? And then you watch the film and you're like, oh, it's pretty clear how this man won. He's absolutely phenomenal. And there's so much character built here in a guy who doesn't really say much. You look at all of the situations going on at the start where we're seeing his spy craft. I love how tactile it all is, where he's using the book of matches to hold the, you know, razor blade to open up the, um, you know, the uh, container with the code in it. Like his whole world is just unfolding around us. And it's all carried through Mark Rylance's performance, which is often very still, very quiet. He doesn't say a lot, but he just like speaks volumes through body language and his eyes. Yeah, and I I found a great quote from an FBI agent who interrogated Abel for for six weeks, and he described him as a gentleman. He was polite. He was a nice guy, and that's exactly how Rylance portrays him. I mean, you know, you're rooting <laughs> for a Soviet spy. I think that's one of the things the film does well is makes what could be, again, the antagonist sort of a protagonist. You are rooting for Abel, even though he is a you know a Russian spy, and he clearly is a Russian spy. The film tells you at the beginning that he is a spy. It's not like it's a did-he-don't-he kind of situation. It's not a panto. 
it's a situation of you know trying to prove his uh, trying to make sure he has due process, and then going through this whole trade off at the end and getting him on side at the beginning and getting the audience on side with this character is is a masterstroke. I am assuming of Matt Charman. And I mean, they established this guy is trading defense and atomic secrets. Like he is an enemy. But I think the thing to really consider too is that Steven Spielberg is a humanist filmmaker. He cares very much about you know, the human beings at the centers of his stories. And that's something that a lot of other directors who made blockbusters did not do as well. And that's something he focuses on. So I think when he approaches this material, he doesn't look as, at this character and be like, okay, I've got to make him an adversary or I've got to make him cryptic. He wants to understand who he is as a human being. And, you know, as Ian says, you know, if, um, you know, Abel was considered like a fairly, you know, nice guy, a gentleman, Spielberg is going to capture that and try to convey that to an audience where we're going to be won over by him as well. And I really enjoy that this character feels like he could be a spy. No one would look twice at this guy in the street. And that's something that, I mean, Scott, a lot of the spy movies we cover, the spies are very sexy people, you know, Anthony Edwards. Um, and... <laughs> But like, you know, Abel is a guy who could disappear in a crowd. You have that whole sequence. And we should mention as well, Spielberg is a master of the sequence. You have the bit where Abel's being trailed by the CIA and the way he disappears into crowds. It's because he's so nondescript. You're talking about uh, people that no one would notice. That's why we have a spy movie podcast, because me and you walking down the street, no one pays us any attention. (laughs) Even when we're wearing our sandwich boards saying spy hard toast. (laughs) Buy our shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I, the other thing I, interesting about the Rylance character of, of Abel was at the beginning when I was watching him, he does that little, uh, his daily routine. He picks up the coin. He goes back to his room. And then the FBI rush the building or the CIA. I'm sorry, whichever one it is. And then he starts wandering around like he's sort of, unsure of what's going on he's walking around in his underwear Mm. i I thought is he like a deluded person i don't know what's really going on here because he seemed to really have a handle on what he was doing when he was evading them earlier on in the film and now he just seems confused but then it turns out that's all a ploy for him to destroy some evidence and it's just genius stuff and it's, it's subtle it's without him speaking it's just subtle moves that he's doing it shows that he's a master of his craft well, and I love all the scenes as well where, you know, you have the back and forth between him and Tom Hanks. And they're going into, you know, a very serious court case that could lead to him, you know, him being executed. And he's just like the most mellow dude. Like he's just so calm. And there's the, um, you know, the line he repeats like three times through the movie. You know, Tom Hanks says like, shouldn't you be concerned? He goes, would it help? And it's so true to that character. He's just... That's why he's such a perfect spy is he does, he's unflappable. He can carry himself through any of these situations. He can have, and I think you're right, Scott, it was the FBI that um, tagged him at the start of the movie. It's the CIA that show up later. Um, But you have the FBI bursting into his place and he's just like, Hey, can I get my teeth? You know, can I clean my palate? And then we see him disposing of codes through the palate cleaning. And it's just played so just matter of fact and, you know, almost like bland. Yeah. Well, he, do, he does that great trick with his uh, cigarette, doesn't he, where there's an FBI agent watching him very closely and he hands him his cigarette and says, oh, can you get rid of that? And when his back is turned is when he destroys the uh, the evidence. Mm-hmm. It's all great choreography. It's, it's great stuff. And the only other thing uh, that jumped out to me with 
is that scene where he's in the holding room with Tom Hanks's character, and he tells a story about the the man who stands up. Yeah, yeah. And he's just that little. He's just giving a speech at this point, a, a story from his childhood about a man who he was told to watch, and he seemed completely unremarkable. And then eventually he saw the man get beat up and keep getting back up again and back up again after he keeps getting knocked down. And he compares that guy to Tom Hanks' character. And it's like a two, three minute just diatribe of just words. He's just talking and telling the story and it's moving. And I think the score is in play by this point. And it's just a, it's just a great scene. The other thing that it underlines is the completely different experience of World War II for the Soviet people versus the American people and as to you know why they're perhaps more you know hardened than uh than than the US and also you know something about their belief system and the way that they you know um trust their government to some degree as well right yeah that's an excellent point actually because the America we get in this film it's we see it's so much compromised by this paranoia of the cold war and that it's trying to embrace these quote unquote American values. But then we have characters like, you know, the judge um, who's uh, not particularly patient about this entire case and just wants to, you know, send off this spy, you know, possibly for an execution even. And it's really kind of stripping the humanity out of, you know, a country that I think wanted to be about humanity. It shows how these situations made it, at war with itself. And you have scenes where, you know, Tom Hanks is being very humanitarian in, you know, his attempts to help Abel in court. And you have like the cop scene where the cop is infuriated with Tom Hanks for doing this. I like that it shows a country that has great values it strives for, but can be compromised by, you know, tensions. I mean, there's a there's a scene when Rylance's character is uh, sentenced and he's given a 30 year term in prison instead of being killed or executed I should mm-hmm. say and there's a guy in the back of the courtroom who just screams out you know why are we not hanging this expletive word you know and uh, and un- you know, in God's name why are we not just killing this spy and you think what is America trying to strive for but that you can also understand the fear and frustration because they're doing things like playing you clips of duck and cover mm-hmm I think the other thing you've also got to think of some of the other contexts here, because in the 50s, two US civilians were executed by the electric chair for spying, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who'd been receiving atom bomb secrets from a relative who worked at Los Alamos and passing them to the Soviets. So there's other contexts there of spies being executed. Um albeit with this one you know the 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 story works around the the fact that you know by keeping him alive you've got an opportunity to swap him for an american who would in- inevitably be captured in uh the soviet union or elsewhere absolutely um what about you ian what's a a highlight moment or performance you wanted to to mention I think you're right about the the story of the standing man. That's a great uh, little monologue that uh, Mark Rylance does there. But I think you know the the film peaks just at the right point with that final. I think it's about ten or fifteen minutes on the Glienicke Bridge in Berlin, where the spy swap is done, and where Rylance then comes back to that story uh, when Hanks is trying to stop the exchange until he knows that Frederick Pryor has been exchanged at uh, 
Checkpoint Charlie. I think that those are the highlights, but I think there's other characters in there who probably don't get the justice that perhaps they, they should do. The guy who plays Fogel, the East German uh, lawyer, you don't really see that much of him, but he is an excellent German actor. And um, I don't know whether you've covered or you've seen the film The Lives of Others. We haven't yet. It's on the list. And yeah, the actor you're talking about is Sebastian Koch, yeah, yeah. who is really good in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, you know, he, he, he plays that role really, really well. And uh, The Life of Others is is well worth um, watching as well. But, you know, I think that those Berlin scenes, I just, you know, they it is a little bit overdone there. The whole thing with... Uh, Hanks crossing over the Berlin Wall and seeing some people being shot um, as the train crosses the wall is um, unlikely <laughs> in in terms of where the train crossed the wall. There wasn't a street like you see in the film. But then again, you know, he he's again adding adding that extra drama and underlying underlining the. Um, context of people being killed whilst trying to escape from from berlin so you know I, w I wouldn't necessarily take that as a criticism but was delighted to see that the trainees he was on had uh wooden seats which is quite an authentic um look for those trains during that <laughs> period so uh i can't criticize there but one of the interesting ones i did notice was when uh there's one scene where donovan is calling home from a call box and he's outside a cinema and where they filmed that scene is the Cinema Kino International, which was actually in East Berlin at the time, oh. not West Berlin. But, um, you know, I, I forgive them because it's a great, you know, it's 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 another um, great scene. But, um, you know, I I think that all of the actors in the film uh, were, were good. It, the, the film just really worked well. You know, I can easily pull it apart for historical inaccuracies, but I think it overall tells the story well, uh, has sufficient drama and uh, interest in it to keep the, you know, a, a general audience entertained. Because as you say, I am a, uh, I struggle to describe my obsession with the Cold War. I'd say Cold War aficionado. Um, and, you know, th this does communicate the story and you know get other people interested in the cold war which uh, is all good as far as i'm concerned you you'd say aficionado uh we would say uh, you're a cold war hard yeah <laughs> you might not say that to be fair uh well i get yeah i get called various things cold war obsessive um uh, that's, that's probably better than being called hard um but i, I yeah do... I, I just want to uh, maybe get Cam's thoughts on uh, something he liked as well. Yeah, well, I just want to sort of touch on the uh, the bridge sequence at the end. I remember in theaters that moment where Abel says, if they embrace me, I'll be okay. If they just show me the back seat of the car, it's not going to be good. And that moment where they just put him into the back of the car. I remember my heart just sunk mm -hmm. in the theater. I was like, oh, my God. I mean... Obviously, Mark Rylance would go on to win the Oscar, but I remember in that moment being like, that is the moment, like, this guy's going to get an Oscar for this because he's so heartbreaking in that moment. And, you know, I was uh, <laughs> cheered up by the, um, you know, tag at the end to find out he yeah, was actually okay. But what a moment. Um, for me, 
one of the really just incredible things about this movie is just the filmmaking. And, you know, you touched on, uh, Ian, that sequence where they're showing, you know, the kids, the, um, the video of the duck and cover. And I remember my mom mentioning watching those types of videos and, you know, having those sorts of, um, those sorts of, um, you know, uh, teachers telling them those things in classes. And, um, it's, I think just a masterstroke of Spielberg's filmmaking is how he does some of his transitions and his, just his technical craftsmanship for sucking you into this world. They're the types of things you don't really notice, but it's something like, you know, they walk into the courtroom and the judge says, all rise. And it cuts to those kids standing up in the classroom, Mm. you know, pledging allegiance to the flag. Um, There's the moments where we're watching them early on where uh, it's Mark Rylance's character has gotten off the, um, the train and he's walking through the station and you're hearing snippets of the dialogue of all the people in the station as he passes by them. And it sort of leads into this whole surveillance state, you know, the sense of we're listening in on a lot of people because it's in, you know, a country right now that's in sort of the waning days of the McCarthy era, but like the red scare was very much a thing. It's like people were listening, you know, Scott, you and I touched on, uh, tackled the, um, the house on, uh, 92nd street. And (laughs) it's that sort of vibe is still alive. (laughs) I didn't think that film would come up. Sorry. It will always come up. It's going to be the movie I touch on the most. <laughs> and, you know, we've got some McCarthy-era paranoid films coming up that they're going to be kind of crazy to revisit because you're going to watch them and be like, like, really? Was this the messages that were being sent out? But it's like, yeah, there was a lot of fear in this era. And I think just through Spielberg's filmmaking in ways that aren't necessarily, like, ultra flashy, he's really pulling you into that decade. Like, just the the sense of place that he creates throughout this entire movie, I found incredibly effective. There's a, there's a moment that impressed me and I wrote a note about it. And then it actually turned up in the interview with him and, and Martin Scorsese, him being uh, Steven Spielberg. And that is when they're at the courthouse after the decision and you see the photographers are all taking their photos, the paparazzi perhaps. And then there's a shot of the flashbulbs on the floor and then walking through them. Now, that scene was only conceived on set. Spielberg saw the bulbs on the floor and thought, oh, that's interesting, and then made the shot happen of him just shooting the low-angle shot of them walking through the light bulbs and made a choice to have um, Tom Hanks' character sort of step around them and then have Amy Ryan and Alan Alder stepping on the bulbs. Interesting just to sort of say that they're on different paths right now and they're doing different things because them, them two want him to stop chasing this uh, this uh, case, whereas Tom Hanks is a man on a mission trying to do the right thing. He's not crushing things as he walks through. I just wonder how many people pick up on that that level of nuance. I mean, I, I, saw, I distinctly remember that scene and thinking, God, that's a really good shot, but I hadn't noticed the different paths. Yeah, I can't say I did either, but I often wonder how much these things just work on a subconscious level. Mm. Like sometimes when you're working with a master filmmaker, you wonder, like, why am I so sucked into this movie? Like, what is it about it? And sometimes it's these little details that you couldn't even necessarily cite. I Just the other night, I went and saw Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, which is a fantastic new movie with Oscar Isaac. And I was watching it. And I commented to, you know, friend of the show, Tyler Orton, who appeared on our Three Days of the Condor episode. I said, it's interesting. You look at all these shots. He's just showing a plain shot of the actor. And yet there is such a strong tone and atmosphere going on. Like there's magic going on kind of behind the frames here that I can't even explain. 
And that's something Spielberg so often does. And he's a very visual filmmaker, one of the best. And just little moments as the one you cited, Scott, they're there. And they're there for you to dig into if you look for them. But if not, they just kind of make the whole movie pop in a way you can't quite put your finger on. Yeah, I mean, that that all rise scene, I hadn't noticed that transition. Mm -hmm. And that's probably great that I'd not noticed that because it was so seamless and so effective. Yeah. The other one that jumps out to me in terms of a you know, tip of the hat to Spielberg for filmmaking was we, we were talking about the hop over the Berlin Wall earlier where the, 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 I think the couple tries to escape or trying to get a girl out and they get shot and trying to go over the wall. And then at the very end of the film, Tom Hanks finds himself back on a train and then he sees some kids playing in the yard hopping over a fence and it's kind of shot in the same way from the same angle and it's meant to evoke that scene earlier on and you can see the panic on Hanks's face as he sort of recalls seeing that person, those people killed in cold blood. And that's just, just just a great bit of filmmaking. And it's all visual, right? Like he doesn't have a character sitting next to him. He goes, you know, that reminds me of when I was in <laughs> yeah. you know, Berlin and there was this wall and let me tell you that story. Yeah. And like, then a quick flashback to that moment. It's all just there and anyone can pick up on it. It's the type of very, very brilliant, um, visual storytelling that, boy, he makes it look easy, but it's very difficult. It's it's subtle, but obvious. And that's a really clever trick to pull off. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's also the visual motif of people always on the, um, you know, the train with the newspapers. And that's how we get a lot of the information through the movie is what's going on on the newspapers. And it's on one hand, it's a very uh, notable Hollywood conceit to have a sequence like that. But at the same time, it's conveying information in a way and establishing what's going on in the world right now in a way that doesn't just have a character standing there telling us these details. There's not many scenes in this film that got a physical, emotional reaction from me. Mm -hmm. But that last scene on the train where the lady is is reading the newspaper, and to, to preface this, earlier in the film, the same lady on the, uh, the same train sees the report of Tom Hanks's James Donovan fighting the case for Rudolf Abel and that all the train starts to look at him in this judgy way. You know, he's unpatriotic. He is, maybe he's a spy too. There's this paranoia on the train. There's this hatred in the train. And then at the end, the lady is in the same seat. She's wearing the same coat. She reads the newspaper now saying how James Donovan helped save both the, the pilot and the student. And she gets up and she just smiles a little bit. She doesn't say anything. It's not outrageous or over the top. She just a little bit of a smile. And you feel that comfort. And it actually got quite an emotional response out of me. Yeah, it's a really strong sequence. I mean, throughout this movie, it's maybe a low-key work within the canon of Spielberg. But there's so many sequences that I could completely see myself revisiting. Um, you know, also just that whole establishment of the Berlin Wall where they're putting it together. And people are, you know, in a panic going from one side to the other. It's... Um, you know, as Ian said, you know, there's a, elements of it that are maybe um, a little more built up than they actually were. But in terms of establishing just like kind of the horror and the fear of that situation, it really sticks with you, that sequence. And there's definitely a, a change in vibe from, and I said this in, in my sort of initial thoughts in, in the two parts of the film, because when you're in America, everything's colorful, quite lush. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the, the wall, West and East Berlin intersecting at the same time as the wall's being built. And everything's just drained. The color is drained. And people around look hungry. And everyone's wearing black and gray as opposed to, you know, 
blues and greens that you saw in America, it, it the palette changes. And that's not something it's, it shouts out at you, but it's there and it, it will get the response that it wants out of you as a viewer. And it makes also when Tom Hanks goes there, it makes him, you, you understand how he's submerging himself into a different world that he's not going to be comfortable with. Because like Tom Hanks is an actor who just projects warmth. He does it better than just about any actor alive. And so when you put him there and have, you know, his, his character is sick through all of it, which I think was really effective as just as a choice as well. Um, and just have him wandering these streets, you know, encountering these gangs, you feel something like you feel that out of, you know, uh, fish out of water kind of element. Yeah, I think the uh, I think, you know, there, there's a couple of other scenes in there, which which I really enjoyed, which was the the one where um, Abel's so-called relatives uh, meet Donovan. And uh, then the uh, the KGB guy comes in and they basically turn off their act, uh, pretending to be his relatives and just march out the room. I thought that was that was a great scene. And the guy who played the KGB guy was really good as well. That that whole negotiation piece was really believable. To be fair, my family do the same thing when I turn up at the house. So. <laughs> Yeah, the actor you cite there yeah. was Michael Gore, or as he's credited in this film, Mikhail Gorvoy. And, you know, Scott and I are Star Trek fans. And one of the big elements of Star Trek is diplomacy. And I think it's something that's often hard to communicate in a way that really grabs viewers. But I thought this movie did a fantastic job of it through these negotiations with Tom Hanks and Michael Gore's characters. In that I was genuinely like sitting on the edge of my seat as two guys in a room, you know, a wood paneled room, discuss the fate of, you know, Abel and these other prisoners. Like I thought, and, you know, Powers and the student, um, I thought those sequences were really strong and, I mean, just brilliant dialogue writing to make this um, negotiation really, you know, really pop. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's a tough film to sell to a general audience because there's no love interest, there's no car chases, there's no real shooting or or sort of well, apart from the plane going down you know there's not really any big showpiece scenes aside from the exchange on the bridge of spies yeah that and the u2 crash like those yeah. are the two flashy sequences in the movie that night i would say also the the establishment of the wall but um the two big spielbergian ones at the bridge and the plane crash and um yeah, it's sort of like you go to Spielberg movies with that expectation of these big, memorable sequences. But even the ones within this movie feel a little more subdued than some of the other Spielberg sequences in bigger movies. Yeah. The the scene on the bridge, I read somewhere that they close... It, it's the real Glenica Bridge. So it's the real Bridge of Spies they filmed on. on. I think it's the only location that was the actual real location. But I'm sure I read somewhere that they had to close off the area for something like four or five days to complete the filming. And it cost them, it, I'm sure I read something like $11 million, which just seems bonkers as a, as a number. I can't remember where I read it now, so it's probably completely wrong. Yeah, I could... When I see a $40 million budget on this movie, my guess is that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg foregoed their upfront fees 
and probably took back end deals on this one, which would probably explain why they're able to shoot on so many locations was they probably used the majority of the budget for that. Right. Okay. Because all the Berlin scenes were filmed in Poland in uh, Wroclaw. Mm-hmm. I wanted to spin off something you said a little while ago, Ian, about love interests and maybe get into maybe another gripe I have with the film. <laughs> um, and, and this is another bit that I would say is uh, quote unquote Argoed. Because this happens to the love interest in Argo to the family of Ben Affleck's character. It also happens to Tom Hanks's family in this film, where, you know, you've got Amy Ryan. It's just an award-winning actor. And she's kind of just on mum duty. Yeah. In this film. And I I I from the interview again that that I heard with uh Spielberg, he said there was a many more scenes shot with the family. But they were just all cut. Now I, I, I get that I, it's a two and a half hour film at the point of, of release, so I understand probably they were dead weight. But it just felt a little bit of shame of having all this stuff set up with like the the gung ho uh, child who I believe is now in Stranger Things, uh, played by uh, Noah Schnapp. Um, you know, you know, he's, he's doing this all this Cold War duck and cover stuff. He's well into that, and you've got the two daughters there and Amy Ryan's mum character. And they're just sort of, they're secondary characters. They don't mean anything to the film. But I just felt it was a bit of a shame. Also, um, the <laughs> the sort of setup of Tom Hanks's daughter in the movie, um, dating his articling student or something. Yeah, blink and you'd miss that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was odd because she was stood up, right? And yeah. the uh, the I don't know if I don't know what he would be if he's a student or if he's a uh, paralegal or whatever. But um, he is um, in Tom Hanks's office in James Donovan's office and says he has a dinner date and Tom Hanks, you know, puts the pressure on him to skip it. And he goes, okay. And the character is played by Billy Magnuson as Doug Forrester. And then we cut to Tom Hanks's house and the daughter saying she was stood up and that goes nowhere. And I have no idea if those two people were married in real life later on. I have no idea. It just felt like a odd detail to never touch on ever again. I guess it gives the family kind of some life in that they are more memorable than if they'd been played really just, you know, matter of fact, uh, these characters are just generic family. But yeah, it's the sort of thing you kind of expect to be paid off a little later. Possibly another made up story. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I am renowned for being an idiot. Around the world, people know me as an idiot. Are you telling me <laughs> that, uh, literally, we have around the world, people know me as an idiot. Are you telling me that the daughter was, I know she was stood up, that's why she came to dinner and they had meatloaf. But then the paralegal who turns up with the books, was that the guy she was supposed to be on a date with? I believe so, yeah. What? There, there's a few glances there that I think sort of <laughs> illustrate it. I thought it was because he's hot. And he is, but like... <laughs> Hey, hey, Billy Magnuson, give me a call. I mean, geez, <laughs> look at that guy. But yeah, I just thought it was that. I didn't think it was anything else. No, I missed that. Maybe we're overinterpreting that scene now. I don't know. But I, d I did get that same impression, though, that, that, that he was the date that had stood her up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Keeping my title as idiot here, guys. It's interesting that in a movie about spycraft, that was the most subtle part. <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, any uh, any other gripes, quibbles, things to shout out? 
Um, what I was going to say is the one gripe I've got is the almost the last frame of the film where the um, words come up to say that Abel was never... A, the Soviet Union never admitted that Abel was a spy, mm -hmm. which is completely incorrect because um, he frequently gave speeches about the importance of his intelligence work. He actually appeared on Soviet stamps... Um, dedicated to intelligence officers. So he was on one, Kim Philby was on another one, as well as US uh, spies Morris and Lona Cohen. So it's unfortunate they do that because un unless you actually look it up, you do think that he's been taken back to Moscow to be shot at the end of that film. Hmm. So that's so strange. If they, I know at no point in this film they go, you know, based on a true story. They never even put that in. So they are... They're admitting that they're not basing on the truth necessarily. But I thought the whole point of having those title cards at the end before the credits was to give you the real life story because they have the real life TV clip on, in the, on the TV right before. Yeah, and also they're using the names. They're using the names of those, of those people as well. Hmm. Um, so I'm not sure of why. I mean, it would be worth asking the, um, the guy you've got coming on. Uh, about that as to why 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 they chose why they chose that as as the ending i'd be interested to know hmm. i mean it yeah i don't that is really fascinating i have no idea why they would make that choice so uh, yeah we'll have to ask about that um i want to just get your guys's take on the u2 plane crash sequence what your thoughts were of it did you think it was effective it's a pretty flashy spielberg action moment well it uh, it certainly gave me Vertigo. <laughs> hello, hello? No? Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh. oh, that's painful. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, Please it's not on. a beautiful yeah. day, Scott. It is not a beautiful day anymore. <laughs> I still haven't found the punchline I'm looking for. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I could do this with or without you. <laughs> yes. Oh, beautiful. Oh, dear. Right, are you done now? I'm sorry, Ian. I'm sorry. <laughs> a serious, serious Cold War conversations podcast host here, and we're just talking about you two. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not that serious. I'm not that serious. Um, I I thought the sequence worked well. It illustrated the fact that Powers was unable to um, destroy the plane. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things, which obviously they're not going to put in the film, but you you might find interesting, is uh, the Soviets whilst shooting down the U-2, managed to shoot down one of their own planes and killed the pilot hmm. um, at the same time uh, who was trying to reach the, the altitude of the U-2. And the other thing in the interrogation sequence with um, Powers where he's asked about the height the plane can reach, um, Powers in his interrogation, he he says that he deliberately gave them incorrect information there because it was obvious they didn't know how high it could go and he actually gave a lower altitude as to its as to its maximum height and i think that that also links up to that final scene where powers is in the transport plane and those other us troops that are on board and the cia guys just ignore him as though you know he he gave all his secrets to the soviets but Certainly his son believes that he, he didn't, and certainly Powers himself um, you know, said that he, he didn't betray anything. 
and sadly he he was killed in a helicopter crash i think about 10 or 15 years later he was a, a news reporter uh, in a in a helicopter in in uh, Los Angeles, I think it was. But anyway, I'm going too far into the detail now. Well, I, that was something with the movie that I understand why they didn't give him a lot of character, but I would have liked to have learned more about Powers. Um, you know, he's played by Austin Stowell here, or Stowell, and uh, he's not an actor I'm particularly familiar with, but his role is very pivotal, and I would have liked to have known a little bit more about him before the crash which again you know it's a pretty sensational sequence but i would have liked to have had a little more vested interest in just him as a person um i understand that he kind of falls sort of as more of a detail in the story of you know the james donovan rudolph um abel story but i think powers the movie might have been a little bit better for me if powers had been a little more of a personality yeah there's an interview with that actor on online with Gary Powers Jr. And um, what Stoll did is he'd listened to hours of audio tape of uh, Powers, the pilot, recalling his shoot down and the interrogations that he had. So, you know, he he obviously, you know, did some research in, into the character. But as you say, he's on relatively briefly and you don't really get any depth of of that character at all. No, and it's also very easy to get thrown now when you watch this movie. And Jesse Plemons plays his like friend and coworker, you know, another pilot in the program. And Jesse Plemons is now like one of the best working actors we have. And you're wondering why is Jesse Plemons not doing anything in this movie? <laughs> I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Cam. I was gonna I was gonna bring it myself, right? So when we had that scene of the pilots in the room after the after the uh, powers, uh, sort of I don't know. He's being investigated. He's here's the, the the lie detector test, I think, or something like that. Yeah. And and they're like, there's four guys. And I, I was convinced that Clemens was going to be the one that would be shot down or would be involved in this story because it's it's Jesse Clemens. But then he ends up just being cast aside for this other guy I've never seen in any other films. So they're really uh, they're really confused me with that one. Yeah, I don't know if that was the case back in the day. When I saw this movie in theaters, I don't know that I had that reaction. But watching it now, yeah, just given Jesse Plemons' uh, uh, significantly increased stature in the acting community, it, it juts out a little more. I was going to say, can I just uh, add one one of my favorite Mark Rylance, Rudolph Abel lines, which sure, we've not covered, which was, uh, he, he says, I'm not afraid to die. But that wouldn't be my first choice. <laughs> He's got oh, the best lines in the outro, movie. Everyone. There goes my outro. <laughs> He's got the best lines in the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, and there a lot of them are low key funny. I liked when they mentioned he didn't register as a foreign agent. He's like, do most? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten that one. I mean, it, yeah. That's the brilliance of that character. I have to say, it's it's it. it, it it's not played for laughs. It's all very low key, as Cam said earlier, and it just it just works. Um, and we'll talk to Mark Sherman about you know who wrote what on the film, but like some of those lines strike me as very Coen Brothers. Mm. So I'll be curious to find out who actually wrote them. But they definitely gave me a Coen Brothers vibe. Yeah, and I want to know why they didn't go for the Geordie accent. That would have been comedy gold in itself. <laughs> I'm not sure about the, uh, the 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 returns at the cinema though. <laughs> yeah, no, 
No, yeah, I think that's probably the 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 reason there. It's a limit as we've as we've spoken. There's a limit to how authentic you can be versus uh, your box office takings. All right, before we go to the knock list, let's just go through any sort of final thoughts or notes we had left over. Cam, what about you? Um, one thing that always jumps out to me in period pieces is to look at what is playing in theaters on screen because we see a fairly decrepit looking movie theater uh, at one point that um, James Donovan walks past and I checked the marquees. What is showing is the 1960 Village of the Damned, Spartacus, and the Billy Wilder comedy One Two Three, starring James Cagney. Three good movies. You really couldn't go wrong at the Cineplex that weekend. <laughs> but for nitpickers, were those films out at the same time? Uh, Village of the Damned and Spartacus were sixty. One Two Three was sixty one. Um, I was also a little fuzzy on exactly the time period, like when this was going down. Maybe Ian can answer this. Well, yeah, I mean, if they were 60, they were, they've been playing for quite a long time because the wall was built in August 61. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, th- this is, and, and I think, you know, if, if you read some of the articles about, you know, accuracy and stuff like that, they play a bit fast and loose with time frames, you know, they compress time frames. But again, you know, you you need to do that in order to, you know, tell the story effectively and to keep the tension there as well. It's also impossible to know in terms of release schedules in those days where movies would often open like long after they, because it was platform releases, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. everything opened at the same time. So it's entirely plausible these three movies could have been playing side by side. Also, films got re releases too. Mm-hmm. And they're released at different dates in different countries. Yeah, exactly. Is that what you mean by platform? release sorry i'm not up with the jargon if we were talking dead drops and stuff like that i'd be fine what's, what's a dead <laughs> drop but, the, no, I'm kidding. but this movie you know jargon i'm not up i'm not up with <laughs> well i mean did you have any notes for us Ian? uh not really i think you know as i've said right right along you know dis, you know despite the historical in, inaccuracies which will bug some people didn't really bug me i mean it's a really entertaining film and rylance and and hanks just really carry it off with a really believable relationship between um client and and lawyer and uh you know i'd i'd absolutely recommend it to uh you know to to other people to watch i think it's a really good cold war movie i think i had two notes left over the first actually jumps off of what you just said there, Ian, about the relationship between the two. And it's, I mean, I know this is a 2015 film, so we've come a long way at this point, but it's always nice to see two men in a film just being nice and helping each other out without there being a woman or another partner involved. Like they're just trying to be good people to each other. Um, You see it in a lot of films now. Someone's inspiration is to get a girl or to impress or a person. I shouldn't even say girl. And so it was just nice to see a a strong friendship grow between two men in the film. Yeah, like it's it's mutual respect and it's conveyed in a way that the audience, I think, walks out happy. Like it's a movie that it has a lot of tension to it. There's dark elements to it. But I think the audience walks out generally feeling good just about the relationship between these two guys. I mean, I would have thrown Cam in the back seat of the car if I was Russia. So, yeah. 
you wouldn't have agreed to defend me in the first place. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I'd be the guy at the back of the uh, the back of the courtroom. I think actually, <laughs> that's harsh. That's really harsh. <laughs> um, the other note I had was about the score, actually, because this is one of the first times I think for a long time that Spielberg isn't backed up by John Williams. Uh, Williams was busy this uh, at this point in time doing The Force Awakens, so that was why he didn't. He was ill. Oh, was he ill? He was ill. Oh, okay. Yeah, some might call it sacrilege that Spielberg without Williams. We've used sacrilege in this this podcast already, so maybe that's the word of the day. But uh, yeah, Williams was uh, was undergoing some medical treatment at the time when they were scoring the film, so he couldn't do it. But uh, you know, Spielberg quickly went to Thomas Newman afterwards, and yeah, you know, we we've spoken about Newman's scores before. I believe he scored uh, one of I, I think he scored the Man with One Red Shoe and Jumping Jack Flash. So there's a Tom Hanks connection right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I'm not as big on the score in this one, and. I didn't remember it wasn't a, a John Williams score. And there was points of it where it was like kind of this tinkling piano score. And I was like, this doesn't feel like what I would normally get from John Williams. And then I saw the credit and it's like, and then it all flashed back to remembering kind of that this was a news story at the time that Williams wouldn't be doing a Spielberg movie. Um, I think I'm just coming around. I'm not, I'm not a big Thomas Newman guy either. Like I'm not a big fan of his Bond scores. So maybe it's just he didn't really work for me here. I can't say that i even noticed the score which might be a good thing mm. um that subcon you know i i was only hearing it subconsciously but it's not the sort of score that i remember i'd remember or have remembered and i only finished watching the film this afternoon so it's it's they have an interesting choice with the score of this film in the sense that they don't actually play any music until the 40 minute mark when the house is shot at Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. And that's that's when his character gets kind of a, a according to Spielberg, a fire lit underneath him mm-hmm. because of that attack. And that's that you start to get more of an orchestral piece in, in the background. And you know, Newman is, is is given a couple of interviews about scoring this film and as as Cam said it was quite highly publicized that Williams wouldn't be doing it. I don't really have a problem with the score. I actually agree with Ian. It doesn't really jump out to me, which I don't necessarily think that means it's a bad score. I don't think score should overtake a film or a TV show, but I I couldn't hum you a tune. Unlike um, The Men with One Red Shoe. Which actually had a really good score. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Well, I believe that uh, plays us beautifully into the knock list. But uh, Cam, as we have a guest, can you just describe and explain what the knock list is yes the knock list is the need to see official classics of the spy hearts canon it's the tortured acronym that we stuck with since day one and will to the very end mm-hmm. and we are looking to compile the ultimate list of great spy films and movies that essentially you could hand that list to people interested in the spy genre they'd watch the list and they'd be happy with you know pretty much all the movies so we like to reward movies that are just genuinely entertaining, but also ones that I think have a lot of historical importance and are kind of must-sees. So that sort of sums up the list. Yeah, so uh, Ian, you'll get a vote on this as you're a guest. So you're up first. Do you think Bridge of Spies should be making the knock list? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, any any reason <laughs> as particular as to why? Uh, because I think it's a... It's... An, a good 
not good is an is an understatement. I th- I think it's an it's an excellent film that does portray a historical story in an entertaining and and gripping way and from my point of view would make people perhaps wanting to understand more about the cold war and the situations that occurred during the cold war would you recommend this film to your listeners yes i would i would but i think you know some of my listeners would you know be uh, picking apart the uh, historical inaccuracies as as well but um you know i i i think it it works in terms of describing the circumstances at the time albeit with some historical liberties what about you cam it's a yes for me as well i think spielberg does a fantastic job with the you know with this film in particular for bringing history to life in a way that you know, Ian touched on it. It's the type of movie that it's just a pure entertainment. It's incredibly well acted, incredibly well crafted. And I think it pulls people into its subject matter so well that I think a lot of them would want to go home and, you know, go down the Wikipedia rabbit hole or what have you in terms of knowing a little bit more about this story. And I think it does its job in that regard really, really well. And the fact that, you know, the first time I saw this movie, it's back in 2015. That Mark Rylance performance has stuck with me, you know, for six years now and will continue to stick with me. So I think it's a pretty terrific film. Okay. well, the the problem with having three votes on this, it means that, again, my vote is completely useless because it sounds like it's making the knock list. But I I want to fight my corner before I make the final judgment on this. Okay. when I went into this film, I'd heard a lot about this film. I'd heard it was a very good spy story. And you look at the caliber of talent behind it, you know, Spielberg. Hanks. That's a that's an A-list combo right there. Okay, it's not going to be a bad film. It might not be a great film, but it's not going to be a bad film. And so I came into this. Uh, it, it takes me back to our Goldfinger discussion with Calvin Dyson, where we all wanted to watch this film and be like the edgy ones and, be, and just say, "Oh, it's not as great as people remember." But it is a really good film, and the hype was well founded. I think this is a a, a brilliant. Uh, dare I say masterpiece at times in terms of portraying the Cold War in a digestible way. And I use that term digestible in in a good way because it, it, it's easy for people to understand what's going on. It's not too plotty. Ian mentioned Funeral in Berlin earlier. Now that's a very plotty film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a good spy story. It's a very deep spy story, but people will have trouble taking that in i don't think you'll leave bridge of spies being confused unless you're me maybe but yeah i don't i don't think it's going to confuse the viewers and as such apart from and then also we spoke about rylance we spoke about the hanks performance they're all fantastic too the filmmaking is terrific the we didn't talk about the costumes and all of the sets that they built for this mm-hmm. again fantastic and and it, despite having a small budget all of that money must have been on screen. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it, yeah, absolutely. And so I, there's no way I could say no to this. It has to make the knock list. So I'm giving it a firm yes. Well, and I think we will in the future also tackle Cold War spy stories that are a lot more maybe detail-oriented, a lot more sparse and stripped down and maybe cold. And they're just as worthy candidates possibly of being included as well. It's just that this is 
for me, if you're going to hand someone a mainstream Cold War historical reenactment film, this is a really great one. It's a great intro into that era. And I think, you know, what I've noticed on my podcast is there is a lot of interest in the Cold War. And I think some of that is down to movies like this that that have been made, but also things like, and dare I say, you know, things like The Americans on uh, TV mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, The Courier. There appears to be more and more, maybe it's because I'm looking out for them, but there appear to be more and more films being made about, about the Cold War because it's just got a great dramatic backdrop. And there's a lot of human stories involved, uh, you know, as your podcast has, you know, obviously delivering to its listeners. Um, And that's something that people respond to. Human stories in very difficult circumstances grab people. And I think this movie does it really well. Well, there you have it, folks. That is three yeses. uh, And without hesitation, Bridge of Spies is making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Now, Ian, thank you for, you know, coming across Checkpoint Charlie from the Cold War Conversations and joining us today on Spy Hearts. Well, you know, it was good that all my papers were in order. <laughs> I, I just got flashbacks to Gotcha again. I think you need to go watch this film. I'm really, I'm sorry about it afterwards, though. I no, God, you you just, I can't believe how many um, responses you've had on Twitter on that on that post. I mean, it's gone crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's a, gotcha. Is it, is it just the mention of Linda Fiorentino, Fiorentino? Uh, whatever it's her name is? Maybe a bit of that, but also early, early, early in this podcast, you know, when Scott and I first launched, we put out posts, you know, advertising that we were doing GoldenEye and Man From U.N.C.L.E. and things like that. And we got a lot of people tweeting at us, when are you going to do Gotcha? When's Gotcha? And neither of us had heard of it. And so there was a real appetite for Gotcha content, apparently, that we can fill. There is. I mean, I'm I'm just astonished by it. Um, where where can you watch it now, anyway? Is it, you've just got to buy the DVD? It's, it's rentable on some, you can buy the DVD, uh, but it is rentable on some services. Right. Okay. Not in Canada, though. Okay. Not in Canada. Okay. Then, then they're buying DVDs. But uh, yeah, it, it it's an interesting film. But we won't dwell on Gotcha because there's plenty of other good spy stories and Cold War stories out there. I was just going to say, have you done the Third Man yet? Not yet. No, it's on the list. It's on the list. That that is such a that is ah. Oh. <laughs> that is but well my favorite my favorite it's not really Ian's getting flushed about that one <laughs> it's not really a spy movie per se i would say oh but... we walk that line a lot don't worry yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but god yeah the yeah anyway go on go on but ian for our listeners can you tell them a little bit more about the cold war conversations and where they can find you uh yeah well the, the cold war conversations podcast is really about preserving the stories of the Cold War before they're lost. And uh, I'm very conscious that, you know, some of the, the stories of World War II didn't get captured, particularly the oral histories. And so Cold War Conversations is hearing these stories told by the people that experienced them. And it ranges across uh, a number of spies, KGB, uh, Stasi, a uh, whole range of those, but also the civilian experience as well. So, for example, one of my favourite episodes 
is a really moving one with an interview with somebody who she was 12 years old came home from school in Romania to find the Romanian secret police pulling her house apart and uh, her father had demonstrated in the capital against the uh, Romanian leader and she tells about the intense surveillance the family was then under for about the next 10 years with microphones in every room and uh, I've got a follow-up interview that I'm planning with her where um, she's had a look at the secret police files which detail her entire life and it's mm. so strange for her in terms of reading about conversations she completely forgotten about that had been observed by this third party namely the uh, Romanian secret police so there's loads of stories like that that really haven't been told before there's some unique accounts in there and you can find us at coldwarconversations.com uh, I'm also quite prolific on Twitter uh, my uh, handle is coldwarpod there and uh, we're also on Facebook as well and uh, Instagram so just search for Cold War Conversations and, you, and you'll find us you'll be more than welcome excellent excellent we'll have links to that in the show notes of course for listeners who want to check out that show and again, Ian, thank you for coming across to to join us this week. But uh, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Ian's tackling the stories that matter. And next week, Scott, we're tackling 2001's Spy Kids, directed by Robert Rodriguez. People have asked us to tackle this franchise, and we're going to do it by gum. Let's launch these Spy Kids. Yeah, we, we tackled some heady films the last couple of weeks, so we thought, hey, we'll give ourselves a break, and uh, we'll take it easy with a, a charming kids film that I actually have some really fond memories of but uh, it'll be interesting to go back and revisit it now after 20 odd years since it came out Jetpacks Ahoy! Well there you go your mission should you choose to accept it is to watch Spy Kids and join us next week you can of course check out the knock list on letterbox.com slash spyhards where you can see the films that made it and the films that didn't as well as the disavowed list and don't forget to follow us discreetly at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, you understand me. Spend the dollar.